dear Lord, we're so grateful that your word is with power. And we want that power here this morning. We, uh, we think of creation. We think of how you told Adam just what to eat, what not to, and he did not follow your word. And we know we are where we are because of that. I pray that you'll bring us back into conformance to your word, that it can have the power you designed in our life. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We've been at the outskirts of Jerusalem and we've seen the, the common people with common problems, but an uncommon Savior. And what... God does for the common people in the outskirts of Jerusalem changes the world. It was there in the outskirts of Jerusalem that Lazarus was raised. It was on the outskirts of Jerusalem, just on the other side of the Mount of Olives, over down near Bethany, when Jesus ascended to heaven. And it is there that he'll return and his feet will touch on the Mount of Olives. That's all on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Um, we read this in, uh, in family worship yesterday, my wife and I did, and I just wanted to share it with you. God will raise up from among the common people men and women to do his work. Even as of old, he called fishermen to be his disciples. There will soon be an awakening that will surprise many. Those who do not realize the necessity of what is to be done will be passed by. And the heavenly messengers will work with those who are called the common people, fitting them to carry the truth to many places. Are you a common person? God wants to use you. He wants to use me today. Did we have prayer? And trying to work what? We already had prayer, right? Yes. I just wanted to make sure. Um, did you ever wonder what happened to people after Jesus healed them? Perhaps they were healed of an incurable disease. Maybe they were raised from the edge of the grave. Were any studies done to see how many of them stayed faithful to the Lord? What happened to the person who was hopeless and helpless? And Jesus, with a word, a touch, a smile, a prayer, healed that individual. You'd think they would always be faithful. You'd think that gratitude would keep them faithful. In medicine, one of the most important aspects of research is to follow up what happens after a treatment is done. And most of the people of Jesus' healing were lost to follow-up. But some we do have in the records, we do have follow-up. In the days of Christ, leprosy was an incurable and fatal disease. Although leprosy became increasingly less common um, in northern latitudes in the last few decades, worldwide it is not a rare disease. One of my friends was one of the top leprosy experts in the world, knows more about the literature and leprosy than any other person I know, uh, Dr. 
Foster, orthopedist. When he was working in Seattle, he found two leprosy cases um, just in seeing some people incidentally. That's um, what he found. I've diagnosed it on a mission trip, but I've never seen it as a dermatologist in this country. During the 20th century, if you had leprosy in the United States, you got a trip to Carville, Louisiana, where you live for several, with several thousand other lepers. But this leprosarium was closed about 18 years ago. And in this country, leprosy today means you'll get a multi-drug treatment to cure the disease. But what did leprosy mean in Bible times? It meant that you would lose your job. If you were a king, you would lose your job. Even if you were um, a prince, prince or a priest, you would be banished from society. You'd be isolated from family and home. You'd never get to hug your children or grandchildren. You lived in isolated areas with other remote, with other lepers. For public safety, you warned anyone who approached you of your disease with a mournful cry, unclean, unclean. When Jesus healed the leper, he restored a life. The family could welcome the leper back. The leper could return to his job. We, th we have three case histories of lepers that Jesus healed. Although Luke 7.22 tells us Jesus healed many lepers, the Bible leaves these three representative cases as samples of many others who were healed. The first account we'll look at this afternoon is found in Luke 5.12. Um, although the story is found in the first chapter of Mark, it occurs in the second year of Jesus' ministry. The story is also given in Matthew, but we're going to focus on Dr. Luke's account because he gave medical information that the others, not being in a medical profession, just didn't give. And it happened when he was in a certain city that behold a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus, and he fell on his face, and he implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Here's a man that Dr. Luke said was what? Full of leprosy. Desire of Ages tells us he is a loathsome spectacle. The disease has made frightful inroads, and his decaying body is horrible to look upon. I don't know what he looked like, but I did find a picture of one leper and uh, that is full of leprosy. Leprosy presents as a continuum between two distinct types of leprosy. In the more mild form, tuberculoid, or in the more official but less lightly, light, widely used nomenclature, posse bacillary, the body defends itself vigorously from the leprosy mycobacteria. The immune system de, uh, defenses of your body limit the spread of this bacteria. But in the second form of the disease, lepromatous or multibacillary, the body is unable to mount an effective defense against the myco, uh, mycobacteria. The germs multiply and spread through the skin and the nerves. As it advances, you become full of leprosy. The skin becomes frightful and unsightly, and it's associated with many deformities. 
This man was full of leprosy. He had the severe leprometous form, obviously. Now, now, Mark wasn't a physician. Matthew wasn't a physician. So they just said the man had leprosy. But the clinician, Dr. Luke, describes the patient with medical detail. It was far advanced. It was hopeless. Verse 13 gives us Jesus' response. He put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be thou cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him. Verse 14 gives Christ, shall we say, post-op instructions to the patient. The instructions were simple and plain. First, the leper was to tell no one. Second, he was go to the go to the priest, and lastly, he was to follow the instructions of Moses exactly on cleansed lepers. Leviticus 14 was a chapter of the Bible that was designed only for the time of Christ. It gives instruction for the temple offering and service in the case of a healed leper. Did the man follow Christ's post-healing care plan? Partially. He first went to the priest to confirm the cure, Mark tells the rest of the story, and it begins with the word, however. He went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter. Now, I've heard people in Bible studies that I've been on, they speculated that Jesus actually wanted him to tell the others about it. He wanted to use this as an advertisement. And he told the man, don't tell in reverse psychology, so that the man would tell. But does Jesus ever give anything in the Bible for reverse psychology, does Jesus ever say to, for you to do something and he hopes you do just the opposite? He doesn't do that. He always says what he means and he means just exactly what he says. Um, what was the result of this man disregarding the instruction of Christ? The ministry of Jesus was cut short. Notice what Mark continues. Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in deserted places. He was a man that was healed of leprosy. In response, disregarded Christ post-healing. Now, you would think that if the words of Christ healed you, you'd want to follow the words of Christ after you were healed. Wouldn't you think that? But he disregarded it. He thought he had a better way. He thought he could advance God's work in a, be, in a way um, that Jesus hadn't thought of. And though he was well-meaning and thought he was marketing Christ's medical evangelism, he actually cut short the ministry of Christ. Notice this insight from the Desire of Ages as to why he disregarded Christ's clear post-op instructions. Conceiving that it was only the modesty of Jesus which laid this restriction upon him, he went about proclaiming the power of this great healer. The restored man felt the boon of health was very precious. He rejoiced in the vigor of manhood, and in his restoration to his family and society, felt it was impossible to refrain from giving glory to the physician who had made him whole. But his act in blazing abroad the matter resulted in hindering the Savior's work. It caused the people to flock to him in such multitudes that he was forced for a time to cease his labors. Isn't that something? Christ's ministry was hindered by the leper, the leper he healed. 
a leper who was trying to help Christ's ministry out. There, folk, many people are wanting to see evangelism go forward. And they'll do methods that the world suggests will increase the effectiveness of evangelism. But we learn from this story, you can't improve Christ's methods. Christ's methods alone will give true success in reaching the people. It is the word of God that will help us to reach the people, not the methods of man. It would have been better off for Christ's ministry if this man had not been healed. Desire of Ages uh, tells us this, page 260, Jesus was not satisfied to attract attention to himself merely as a healer of physical diseases. He was seeking to draw men to him as their savior. He desired to turn their minds away from the earthly to the spiritual. His interest was not merely to heal lepers of the body. He wanted to heal lepers of the soul. Do you know if, if, you, if you ask for prayer in church service, uh, people will raise their hand and they'll ask you to pray for this sick person, that sick person, at least it happens in my church, that happens in every other church I've been to. And we're more concerned about somebody who's physically sick and we're not concerned, or we don't ask them to pray, for those who are spiritually dying. Isn't that amazing? I've heard that sometimes. Though. Yeah. More often than not. Yeah. Sometimes it's Notice this, uh, this next um, sentence. Mere worldly success would interfere with his work. Do we want in our evangelistic outreach, out, outreach mere worldly success? No, we want something better. Like the leper... Do we let our ideas as to what will advance God's cause hinder and cut short Christ's ministry in our office, in our work, in our churches? It's easy to fall into the trap of believing that more worldly success will somehow promote the gospel. It does not. There's an interesting letter to a physician in volume 8 of the Testimonies. There are those entering the medical missionary work who are in danger of bringing into it the objectionable sentiments received in their former education. That's what the heel leper did. They need to practice the principles laid down in the Word of God, else the work will be marred by their... Can you read that up there? If you're too far back, you can come closer. By their preconceived ideas. When we work with all the sanctified ability that God has given us, when we put aside our will for the will of God, when self is crucified day by day, day, then good results are seen. We move forward in faith, knowing that our Lord has promised to undertake the work entrusted to him and that he will, accomplishment, he will accomplish it, for he never makes a mistake or a failure. When by faith men place themselves in the Lord's hands, saying, here am I, send me. He accepts them for service. But men must not hinder his plans by ambitious devisings. For years, the Lord has had a controversy with his people because they have followed their own judgment and have not relied on divine wisdom. 
Let the workers take heed, lest they get in the Lord's way, hindering the advancement of his work, thinking that their wisdom is sufficient for the successful planning and carrying forward of the work. Do you think it still happens today, maybe? Am I following my own ideas of how to advance God's work while I'm really hindering it? Our ideas of what will advance God's medical missionary cause may hinder medical evangelism. We need to know God's instruction. We need to know God's instruction in education. We need to know God's instruction in raising a family. We need to know God's instruction and follow it. Where the word of a king is, there's power. Let's look at the next case report follow-up. Luke 17, 12. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers who stood far off. Um, They had to stand far off from Jesus because that was the public health rules of the day. Jesus was surrounded by a crowd, and so you couldn't get close to a crowd. They lifted up their voices and said, Master, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. As an aside, the cry of these lepers was for mercy. Remember that cry for mercy in the next case report we look at. So when he saw them, he said to them, go show yourselves to the priest. They weren't cleansed yet when they left Jesus. There was a test of faith. But they obeyed, went toward the priests, and as they were traveling, the leprosy went away. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. As they followed the instruction of what to do, of Jesus, they were cleansed. If we want to be cleansed, we follow the instructions of Jesus, don't we? The hypopigmented plaques faded away. The formerly hypertrophic nerves were no longer enlarged. The system's immune system was restored. The microbacterium leprae, bacilli, was cleansed from the system. The lepers were no longer unclean. They were no longer lepers. They were no longer contagious. Their disease was now only a memory for them, their family, and their friends. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? Nine Jewish lepers. And not one glorified God by giving thanks. They went on their way without a further thought of Jesus. They were too busy getting on with their life to take time to come back and thank Jesus. Have we received blessings from God today? Are we filled with gratitude? Or are we too busy to express our thanks? Notice verse 18 again. Was there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? As Seventh-day Adventists, we have a message to be given to the world called the three angels' message. And the first angel's message says, fear God and give glory to him. How do we give glory to God? What one way? What is one way according to this verse? Giving thanks to the Lord. 
That's the first angel's message. And this story teaches us that gratitude is an important part of giving glory to God. Then of all people on earth, we should be the most expressive in giving thanks. Yet we are told, volume 3, page 180, I was shown that the nine who did not return to give glory to God correctly represent some, what's the next word? Sabbath keepers who come as patients. Don't be either surprised, disappointed, or discouraged if you're in medical evangelism that sometimes people of the world are more appreciative than people of the remnant church. It's always been for Jesus. Those he does the most for are sometimes the most ungrateful. They take his blessings for granted. They just assume them. Um, um, there was a chip that was a chip program, the Coronary Health Improvement Program, that was held in one of the churches of Michigan. And the one who uh, told me about it told me that the members grumbled and complained about the dietary changes that were required, the non-members were thrilled. <laughs> Point two in post-restoration follow-up. Don't be discouraged when you discover that sometimes your attempts to help others is more appreciated by those not of our faith. That's what happened to Jesus. Speaking of the lepers who had, been called on, who had called on Jesus for mercy but then were unthankful, we are told, thus will physicians have their efforts treated. So if there's any other physicians here besides me, this is an encouragement to me. Uh, that's just what we expect. Yeah, it's okay. But if in their labors to help suffering humanity, one out of 20 makes a right use of the benefits received and appreciates their efforts in his behalf, the physicians should feel grateful and satisfied. Let us then show gratitude to God for allowing us to be medical evangelists um, or whatever our, our uh, approach to people is and even occasionally having somebody thank us for it because the very experience allows us to experience what Jesus experienced sometimes even from us. If the king of glory, she continues, the majesty of heaven worked for suffering humanity, and so few appreciated his divine aid, physicians, but it would be true of anyone else, should blush to complain if their feeble efforts are not appreciated by all and seem to be thrown away on some. Well, there are two follow-ups that we've had, two stories of leopards being cleansed. The first cut short Jesus' ministry. The second, nine out of ten were unthankful. Here's a, another story of a healed leper in the New Testament. Both Matthew and Mark refer to Simon as the leper. We don't have an account of his healing. We just simply have the fact that he had been a leper and he had been healed. Was he in that unthankful group of nine? We'll never know until heaven. Though he had been healed, his former disease set him apart for life. It was an identifier that would never change in most individuals' mind. But he had another identifying characteristic. Luke 7.36 tells us, 
he was a Pharisee. We all know about the Pharisees, that strict sect of the Jews. Simon's life was occupied with the many detailed rules in a human effort to keep from committing sin. Uh, They wanted to be perfect, but instead of allowing the Holy Spirit in their life to perfect them, they set about perfecting themselves, and it doesn't work. Simon lived in Bethany, a suburb on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Luke begins this case report with a meal. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. We need to understand what it really means that a Pharisee invited Jesus to eat with him. Luke doesn't give the context. We have to glean it from John's account. We saw this, uh, some of this yesterday. John 1 tells us, uh, John 12:1 tells us that this meal occurred on the last Sabbath of Christ's earthly life. Now, um, I do have a handout here. Um, this was from yesterday. If you have yesterday's, you can uh, see some of these uh, No, I'm sorry, it doesn't have it. It doesn't have it. So um, this was uh, six days before Christ's seizure and crucifixion. At this time, the Pharisees were in absolute hatred of Jesus, and they were determined to kill him. Notice the verse just before John 12, 1, John eleven fifty seven. Now, both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given the command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. They were not only trying to kill Jesus, they were also seeking to stop any who were followers of Jesus. Notice John 12, 42. And the, study, the story we're studying is sandwiched just between these two verses of John eleven fifty seven and John 12, 42. Nevertheless, any among the rulers... Uh, Even among the rulers, many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. Why? Lest they be put out of the synagogue. If you were a follower of Jesus, you were ostracized. You were uh, shut away from the benefits of worship. You were considered a traitor of Israel, even an enemy of the Jews. This man, Simon, a Pharisee, two miles from Jerusalem, less than two miles, 1.875 miles, uh, had invited Jesus to his house. That was a brave thing to do. He was inviting scorn and and persecution. But perhaps Simon justified it by inviting Lazarus at the same time. As a Pharisee and a believer in the resurrection, he could defend his actions by showing that he was simply highlighting the Pharisee's belief in the resurrection and putting down the Sadducee's belief that there was no resurrection. Simon was sympathetic to Jesus. Why? Because he had been healed by Jesus of leprosy. And that's the story, the context in Luke 7. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Generally, we look at Mary in this story, as we did yesterday, 
But in our study today, I want us to look at Simon. Dr. Luke doesn't even name Mary in his account. This action of Mary's was very embarrassing to Simon. One of the charges against Jesus was that he consorted with publicans and sinners. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. The phrase he spoke to himself is interesting. Did you ever speak to yourself? Now, I'm told that there are two reasons we talk to ourselves. Sometimes we just want to talk to an intelligent person. Other times we just want to listen to one. Um, Ellen White has an interesting comment about Eve while uh, around the tree of knowledge of good and evil. She says that she was Eve was talking to herself. And Satan could hear her as she was saying, I wonder why God has said we shouldn't eat this. And Satan was able to take her talking to herself and just feed right in and answer from the serpent in the tree. We talk to ourselves all the time. You are actually talking to yourself right now. When we are in a group, we are continuously evaluating what is being said or done. We are either agreeing or we're disagreeing or we're turning out, tuning out or thinking about something else. We say things to ourselves we would never dare say out loud. But God and good angels are listening, even when we speak to ourselves. Growing up, I put together a kit called The Visible Man. Anybody remember The Visible Man? Yeah. It made the skin transparent and the inner organs visible. But the Bible is really the visible man. It makes the thoughts and intents of the heart visible. Simon the Pharisee was talking to himself, and the recorder was going, he just didn't know it. And we got the transcript of his thoughts. How did Simon the Pharisee begin his conversation? How did he address Jesus in his mind? This man. In this mental conversation, we found out what Simon really thought of Jesus. We can notice a certain contempt for him. There's a certain disdain in the expression, this man. To Jesus' face, Simon called him respectfully rabbi. But in his mind, when he was talking to himself, he said, this man. How discouraging it could have been for Jesus. Jesus had healed Simon of his leprosy, but the best that Simon can manage is this man. In Simon, we see the thought processes of a judgmental person. Simon the Pharisee was very practiced in judging others. We see how he judged Mary. She was a sinner. Now we see how he judges Jesus, this man. Those who sit on ju in judgment on others will sooner or later sit in judgment on Jesus. 
Now I'm going to say something that sounds complicated, so you will need to listen closely. There was a dark secret that Simon knew. And Mary knew. And Jesus knew. But Simon didn't know that Jesus knew. Jesus was not a prophet in Simon's eyes. And Jesus was about to give evidence to Simon that he was, in fact, a prophet. Simon was guilty of immorality, the very sin he was condemning in Mary. How do we know? The Bible tells us, Romans 2.1, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever, whoever you are who judge. And in whatever you judge, you condemn yourselves. For you who judge practice the same things. You see, the Bible gives us powerful insight into humanity. Do you want to know what sins legislatures are guilty of? I always know what sins the various members are hiding. Uh, by listening to what sins they loudly denounce in the other party. Yeah. You always know. Ellen White confirms that. What sin was Simon guilty of? Adultery. How do we know? He was very judgmental of Mary. We can see this in David's experience. He was guilty of the murder of Uriah the Hittite, one of his most faithful soldiers. When Nathan the prophet told King David about a rich man who killed a pet lamb of a neighbor, David way overreacted. The observant Bible student will see in the very overreaction the evidence of David's guilt, his unconfessed guilt. 2 Samuel 12, 5. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. Now, just a second. This was a lamb. He had killed a man. It is a law of human nature that those sins that we harshly and self-righteously condemn others are the very sins we have committed. If you listen carefully to people, you'll have great insight into people. We have the expression, it takes one to know one. The sins we suspect in others are the sins we have or are committing. If we have done it, we think everybody has done it. We really only think we hide our, hide our sins. Without knowing it, by our reaction to other sins, we are proclaiming our own sins to the world. By Simon's reaction to Mary, we can know with Bible certainty that he had unconfessed sins of immorality in his life, hidden there. Ellen White confirms this. The book Desire of Ages even provides a further detail you could not deduce by reason alone. It was Simon who was the cause of Mary's years of immorality. Further, we learn from a Signs of the Times article, uh, May 9, 1900, that Simon was actually Mary's uncle. It was Simon who abused Mary, starting her down her road of prostitution. There's no reason whatsoever for Simon to feel superior to Mary. He, of all people, should have been most kind and understanding. In the books of heaven, her life of sin was included in the list of his crimes and their results. But you know the people we have the most hot, hard time loving are the people who are most like us. Let me give you another sample. 
What was Jacob's sin? He listened to his mother. He He pretended to be his brother and deceived his father. Now what happened to uh, Jacob? He then had Leah who did what he did except in reverse. She pretended to be her sister at the request of her father and deceived him. And do you think he could love Leah? Of all people, he should have said, you know, Leah, I understand. You're my wife. You're going to be my only wife. And that's the end of the story. That's what should have happened. But uh, that's not how we play out. Leah was never his favorite wife even though God was trying to teach him about how offensive his own sin was toward his brother. Isn't that interesting? Now, Jesus could have denounced Simon right there in front of everybody, but he didn't. Any more than he exposed Mary. And Jesus has an accurate list of every sin that I've committed. Do you know what he could do? Let me repeat something we noted yesterday in the study of Mary. I mentioned yesterday, he could whisper in your ears my sins and embarrass me. Or he could just stand up and shout them out. Wouldn't have to whisper them. He could not only do that about my life, but he could take every person here without exception and stand up and begin to read the list. But Jesus doesn't do that. If I have a list of your sins, should I publish them? Ellen White wrote an interesting letter to uh, um, Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, and she said that he he would collect um, stones, that is, the information he had about others, (laughs) and he'd have them in his little pile so he could stone them at the appropriate occasion. (laughs) And James White would also get his collection of stones. Dear folk, do you have your collection of stones? Stoning is gone. Stoning is gone. You know, the way the world does things, the way that Hitler stayed in power, there were three different secret service agencies that he had, and he had each of them spying on each other. And... Uh, they, dig, they d- dug up dirt on each other. And then they would blackmail each other. Um, I'll expose you if you expose me. That's how each of them kept quiet. Is that how Christians are to be? No. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. We're so quick to expose others, but in doing this, we are really exposing ourselves. Christ's words were very convicting, however, to Simon. He began to recognize something of his own sinfulness as he saw how gentle the love of Jesus was. Simon began to realize that he had a disease of the soul more deadly than that of leprosy. Jesus was performing a healing more important than the healing of leprosy. Simon began to sense that he had a little love for the Lord. And Jesus Christ had a great deal of love for him. 
Has Jesus given you blessings? Physical blessings, health blessings, various blessings. The goodness of God is designed to lead us to repentance. And I want him to bring me to that point. I want his goodness not to lead me to pride and self-sufficiency, but to greater love and thankfulness, don't you? There are many who have the same idea as Simon. They believe a true prophet is someone who goes around condemning and exposing someone else's sins. They think that's, they, they think that's what Ellen White was, and she wasn't. A prophet is a person who would not allow sinners to come close to him. A prophet will drive the sinner away. And so Simon's judgment was that Jesus could not be a prophet because he wasn't out exposing sin. But Jesus was exposing sin. And he was exposing it to the people that need it. He was exposing the sin of Simon to Simon. You know, I think about this. Some thanks Jesus got for healing leprosy. Simon the healed leper concluded Jesus wasn't even a prophet. From a human standpoint, it seems discouraging when we look at the follow-up of Jesus healing lepers. Of all the lepers who were healed, we find that the first one shortens Jesus' ministry. Nine of the ten don't even thank him. And this third healed Jewish leper doesn't even believe his benefactor is a prophet. If Jesus was healing for some other reason than love and compassion, he would quit. If I were Jesus, I wouldn't have wasted time healing people, that's for sure. Oh, the grace of Jesus. Why does he give any gifts to us? And that brings us to our third point in leprosy follow-up. Each of these lepers had a spiritually, spiritual disease worse than their physical disease. Healing the body wasn't enough. Something further was needed. The lepers needed more than cleansing of the skin. They needed cleansing of the heart. They needed not a dermatologist. They needed a cardiologist. The first leper needs a follow-up cleansing that makes him obedient to every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The nine lepers need a cleansing from ingratitude, and Simon the healed leopard needs to become Simon healed from the pride of Phariseeism. Part of Christ's healing restoration is restoring our souls. As David exclaimed, he restoreth my soul. This is instruction to me as a physician. Every medical practitioner, whether he acknowledges it or not, is responsible for the souls as well as the bodies of his patients. We have watched Jesus as he heals the body of the lepers. Now we observe him as he heals the soul of a leper. As Simon watches the way Jesus behaves toward Mary, he concludes Jesus is not even a prophet. People are offended at the nice way Jesus treats others. They want him to denounce other people's sins. Do you know the thing that gets most people ang most angry about Jesus? His compassion. They want him to be compassionate to them and, and very incompassionate to everybody else. They want them to be compassionate to their sins, but be very uh, uh, hard on other people's sins. That's how it is. And they get mad at Jesus because he doesn't destroy this world right now. Destroy Islam and destroy the Hitlers and destroy all these things. But Jesus is full of compassion. 
This is our day of grace. This is our opportunity. And it's a good thing. When Simon was talking to himself, his mental supreme court was in session. Jesus was a physician. He didn't drive the sick away. He invited them to himself so he could heal them. And he listened to Simon as he spoke to himself. God is an interested listener. And sometimes he'll enter into our conversations with ourselves. He did it with Simon. Jesus answered this unspoken question and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Then he stops. He's the consummate gentleman. He isn't in your face. He doesn't push himself where he's not wanted. He pauses to see if Simon wanted to hear what he had to say. Simon could have said, I don't want to hear anymore. But Simon's interest was aroused. Teacher, he said, say it. So with the permission, Jesus told him a story. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. 50, uh, 500 denarii was nearly two years' wages. According to Google this week, that would be about $93,000 in 2018. And 50 denarii was nearly three months' wages, which would be about $9,000. Adding the Roman tax system, a 50 denarii debt would be difficult to repay, but a 500 denarii debt would be nearly impossible to repay. Simon was listening closely. Perhaps he had gone into debt trying to treat his leprosy. Perhaps he had gone into debt while he couldn't work with leprosy. I don't know. But Jesus always selects a story that's going to appeal to the person he's talking to. Somehow, some, Simon must have understood something about debt, and so Jesus talked to him about it. When they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Now, since Simon wasn't sure where the story was going, he was very cautious about the reply. He didn't want to get trapped. So he says, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. Seeing Simon's hesitancy, Jesus does something so important in teaching. He says, right, Simon. Exactly right. We like to be told we're right. There are times I've had teachers that seem to love to ask questions we would miss but not Jesus. He liked to ask questions you couldn't miss. But notice Jesus' commendation of Simon's reply is not simply that Simon had answered right. Jesus said that Simon had judged rightly or righteously. And having heard what Dr. Neil Nedley refers to as the pleasant present truth, Jesus the medical evangelist next gave him testing truths. He had heard the pleasant truth. Now he was going to have the present truth. Turning to Mary, but speaking to Simon, Jesus contrasts the two. When I came into your house, you gave me no water for my feet. Simon had neglected routine, minimal hospitality for a Middle East guest. Undoubtedly, he had been influenced by the Pharisees' hatred of Satan, and he felt he had to keep a little distance. But Simon's neglect had been supplied by Mary. This woman has washed my feet with her tears and has wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss. Simon had neglected the customary Middle Eastern greeting, but his neglect had also been supplied by Mary. This woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. 
You did not anoint my head with oil. Simon had neglected the customary Middle Eastern kindness of placing perfume on the guest. But this neglect, too, had been supplied by Mary. This woman had anointed, has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Jesus was teaching the same truth to Simon that he taught through the prophet Hosea and twice repeated to the Pharisees. If ye have known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. Therefore I say to you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Simon began to realize that he had a disease of the soul more deadly than his leprosy. Jesus was performing a healing more important than the healing of leprosy. The healing of the body is only part of the treatment. He now needed healing of the soul. In the quiet moment with Jesus, Simon had the same discovery that Elijah had while looking for a God of judgment in earthquake, wind, and fire, but was transformed by the God of the still small voice. Simon now had healing of his soul in that quiet moment with Jesus. In those few simple but profound words of Jesus, he had the same humbling Isaiah had when the coals of fire touched his lips, and he went from pronouncing God's woe on others to exclaiming, woe is me, for I am undone. Some years ago, we lived in a very, very secluded area in the foothills of Fort Mountain, miles from the nearest city. Our house was nine-tenths of a mile up a steep, winding gravel road. During the summer, you couldn't see the five neighbors' houses, but, those, but there was a sixth house that sat by the road. Of course, it was an eyesore. It was a dump. This home decreased the value of all of our homes. For time, it was vacant. The back door had a broken window. The roof leaked and sections were sinking. The ceiling was falling in. I called up the zoning board to have it condemned, but the zoning board refused to do it. Another neighbor was an attorney and visited the zoning board to have it condemned. A member of the zoning committee came out, surveyed the house, but would not condemn it. We actively sought to discourage anyone from looking at or buying it. But the house we saw no potential in was viewed differently by another who saw it as a bargain and purchased it. We knew it was purchased. We knew it had a new owner because profound changes began almost immediately. The roof was repaired. The house was painted. Junk was hauled off. The purchaser saw a lovely little house to live in the rest of his life. My approach was to condemn and tear down. Christ's approach is to transform and build up. You can tell when there's a new owner in the life, there's a transformation in the house. And that's why I want, want him to do for, for my soul what he did for Simon's soul and Mary's soul. It's my desire to see through his lies as, eyes as I care for every person. I love the following quotation. The condition in blank in blank is no more disheartening than was the condition of the world when Christ left heaven to come to its aid. He saw humanity sunken in wretchedness and sinfulness. He knew that men and women were depraved and degraded and that they cherished the most loathsome vices. 
Angels marveled that Christ should undertake what seemed to them a hopeless task. Dear folk, if we were dependent on the angels' love, we would have been lost. And they wondered about Jesus, that he would actually bother with humanity. They marveled that God could tolerate a race so sinful. They could see no room for love. But God, not angels, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whomsoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. When that little babe of Bethlehem came into this world, angels suddenly looked at humans differently. And it is because of Jesus that even angels are interested in us, because they see Jesus' love, and they've received Jesus' love into their hearts. Thank God for Jesus. Christ came to this earth with a message of mercy and forgiveness. The Savior has a boundless love for every human being. In each one, he sees capacity for improvement. With divine energy and hope, he greets those for whom he has given his life. In his strength, they can live a life rich in good works, filled with the power of the Spirit. Simon began to sense that he had little love for the Lord Jesus Christ, while Christ had a great deal of love for him. Jesus changed Simon from an unrighteous judge to a righteous judge. He cleansed Simon the Pharisee just as he had cleansed Simon the leper. And he is seeking to do the same for each one of us. Have you ever been Simon the leper? I've been. Have you cried out for mercy and been healed from some dreadful condition? Have you ever been Simon the Pharisee judging others? Many have dealt with the erring as with traitors when they ought to have been dealt with in the mercy and compassion of Christ. Simon had cried out for mercy and received it, but he was not willing to grant others the mercy he himself had received. God has revealed his character toward fallen men by giving him a Savior, Jesus Christ. He covenanted not to stir up his wrath against the perversity of his children, not to censor them in his hot displeasure until every advantage has been given them through all their period of probation. This is not the time of God's wrath. That's coming by and by. But today the offer of pardon is just yet available. It must be given to every person on the face of the earth. This is our work as Seventh-day Adventist. We present to all Christ's offer of healing of the body. He can and will even resurrect the dead. We present to all Christ's offer of healing of the soul. And even when they shall refuse his warnings, his message of invitation, the presentation of his righteousness, when they continue to sin in the face of light and evidence, still he will not break forth upon them in his great anger. Should we? He leaves all judgment to his son, whom he gave as a sin offering for the world. His physical blessings, his health blessings, his various blessings are designed to lead you to the position in which it led Mary, then Simon. I want him to bring me to that point, don't you? And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. It is in comprehending the greatness of our sin 
that we can see the greatness of God's love. Until we see ourselves as sinners, we can never see Jesus as the Savior He is. Until we see, Je until we see ourselves as the sinners we are, we can never see Jesus as the wonderful benefactor. God loves us with all His heart, with all His soul, with all His mind, with all His strength. And if I love Him, no sacrifice will be too great. No offering will be too costly. No price too high to give to God. He has given everything for me. In the same way God loves me, I want to love Him in return, don't you? Would you like to just bow your heads with me and thank Jesus for His love to, to each one of us? Dear Lord, thank You for these stories that reveal in a, in a deeper way Your love for us. Help us to see Jesus in all His pristine purity, power, and glory. And please take out our unloving hearts. Replace them. Take out that Phariseeism. Take out the sin. Sin on the one hand, Phariseeism that would, that would disguise it as holiness and make us humble children of yours. Your love is so wonderful to us. In Christ's name we pray. Thank you for hearing and answering this prayer. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.